Hey everybody, this is just a quick bonus episode Brian and I recorded the other day. I did though, I have recently gotten a surprising number of requests from listeners for shorter episodes. Love the show, just wish there were less of it. <laughs> and you know, while I, I I don't really understand, I talked to Alice about this, I don't really understand this. I do feel like we need to conduct like a, a national a uh, uh, public service campaign explaining the function of the pause button, but but apparently there's a fair number of listeners who are who are simply sitting at their desktop computers uh, listening to the show over the speakers. Which, uh, God bless you, that is not what I intended. I didn't. <laughs> my hope was that you would listen to this while you were jogging or doing the dishes. Uh, but until I can go. Uh, in person to everybody's house and help you subscribe to the show on your phone. Uh, I, you know, I figured I would do, I will, by the way, I'll be in Baltimore and truly genuinely, if you come to Alexis Sears and I are giving a reading in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins at 6 p.m. on April 5th, this coming Tuesday. If you are in town, if you live in the area, come to Hopkins for the reading and I will personally uh, subscribe to the show on your phone so you don't have to listen to it at your desktop computer. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. But until I can do that for everybody, I figured I would take this is a this you know this ended up being kind of a long conversation between Brian and me. And so I just split it in half. In the first half, we talk about an essay by Parul Segal uh, that came out in the New Yorker recently called The Case Against the Trauma Plot. That is uh, this uh, this installment. And then in a day or two, I will release the second one, which is a conversation about Jennifer Senior's uh, Atlantic article, It's Your Friends Who Break Your Heart. They're both pretty fun uh, conversations, but they do kind of, they, they do kind of stand alone. So uh, for all of you <laughs> listening at home on your desktop computers, again, uh, <laughs> may the gods smile upon you. And uh, for everybody else, uh, in, uh, more, more coming soon. Uh, thanks very much. Let's get to the conversation right now. I've read these two essays. That's what I've done to prepare. Are I you... made you read an essay you hated and an essay you enjoyed moderately. I didn't hate either. And I didn't really enjoy either. <laughs> I, I, I I, I'm interested in trying to figure out what the the purpose of these two essays are, what what Perul and, and Jen thought they were doing, what they were trying to do, what they ended up doing. I it's not clear to me. I but, but the, the trauma plot, which is the the one in the New Yorker, yeah. is a lot more um straightforward in terms of like the existence of a thesis. it's a it's an, it's an essay, the form of which I'm, I'm more familiar with. Yeah. The, the Jen Senior essay, I think, has a lot more like perceptive, cultural, analytical moments than, than the New yeah. Yorker piece. Yes. But I'm not sure what its point is. So I, I think that they're a, they're a funny, a funny uh, tandem. Yeah. I, I also like I I sh I recommended. Uh, both to Joanna, she's not yet read the Jen Senior one. She read, God, we're stuck with Jen. Really. She did read the Pearl Siegel, and in, in, in which uh, Siegel makes an argument basically saying that here's this kind of plot that we've been seeing a whole lot of lately, and I think it's too much. And she was immediately 
not necessarily defensive, but sort of re resisted it and, say, and sort of said, well, hey, I can, there are times when trauma can be an interesting plot and, and they're, you know, what, you want to get rid of all backstory and you, so. Well, I that's, that's the, that's the conversation I wanted to have with you as well. I don't know whether Seagal does a good job of differentiating the trauma plot from backstory. If her point, if um, Parul Seagal's point is that today we spend too much time on what happened to characters to make them act this way, mm. as opposed to how, in what way are characters acting? Yeah. Would that satisfy you as, as a general um, explanation? Yeah, of, yes, of I, think, I think that's the, I think the, that like the, the most useful version of this essay is like, hey, we all need backstory and we all need, you know, front story, but uh, the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of backstory and, and like there's too much of this right now and we could use a little less. Do you think, one, that Pearl Segal believes that there is too much backstory and not enough what people are doing? Two, do you believe that she is conflating backstory with trauma? And three, do you believe that she is correct? So th those seem like there, there are three separate questions there. I think like short answer, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so that means she's done a wonderful job. Um, well, I think she is conflating backstory and trauma a little bit. But is that, but, but intentionally? But yeah, maybe, I don't know. I think I also like, I, I guess because I am less interested in the... I'm less interested in the specific cases she made just because I haven't read a lot of these books, like A Little Life. Well, that's the thing. I mean, just like we talked about Charlie Kaufman a couple months ago, I get the sense that most of what Seagal writes in order to demonstrate how much she has seen and read, like it's 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 name dropping, but it's name dropping to the point of there are, there are too many examples. And instead of delving deeply into any of them, she just gives you a long laundry list of all these people who have experienced trauma. But that to me yeah. is not particularly compelling because so many characters she doesn't mention experience trauma. You know, she says, we settle in for more episodes of Marvel superheroes brooding broadly over daddy issues, more sagas of enigmatic, obscurely injured literary heroines. So what's her point? That right now Marvel superheroes have tragic backstories, <laughs> but don't all superheroes have tragic backstories? Like, well, right. so, like so I think, isn't I Superman, think... wasn't he abandoned and all his, his parents and family was killed and then he and, showed and up is, as a and new there person? Is a specific... Wasn't Batman's parents yeah. oh, killed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, these are, these are generations before today's Marvel superhero movies. And I think they're not Marvel, they're the other one. And like, it's not just superheroes. Like, what if you go to, and this is more your realm than mine, but like, I haven't read Aeschylus forever, but like, isn't right. the whole thing with Agamemnon that like Clytemestra kills him for all these reasons of like things that happened before the story starts. And it's like in the story that we are seeing Agamemnon be punished for Clytemestra's uh, suffering. And it's her suffering because of the loss of her daughter, whose name might be Iphigenia, but I don't fully remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They're different pronunciations. Like that sacrifice yeah. and then other things. And like, that's all built in and really important to the present action. Like I, what is the difference yes. between so, the Oresteia trilogy and what Pearl Segal is attacking? And I would even say like the difference between Agamemnon and the libation bearers versus the kindly ones, which is, or the humanities, which is 
which is a little more <laughs> like a courtroom drama trauma thing. But so I, I think I think like the short answer is like is emphasis. That it's not that you're right that like all all of these stories have always had, you know, grief grief stricken parents and okay, traumatic backstories. Great. But emphasis so is the big difference. So let, let's talk emphasis. She discusses one novel, which I completely agree with her about. And I don't think people have taken enough shots at um, A Little Life. And I think one of the reasons why this essay got the attention it did is because a huge number of people who read A Little Life, which is like a 50,000 page book about it's this enormous. one character named like Jude enormous, yeah. suffering. I read it because my publisher used it as a comp for my second novel um, mm. to my distress because my novel has a central character who suffers in a much, much less severe way um, and a group of friends who surround that character and try right. to cope with with his suffering. So A Little Life was a comp and I read it and I entirely agree with what Segal is saying about A, a Little Life. It is um, a sort of, I don't know whether to call it sadist or masochistic because we're both experiencing the suffering along with the main character and inflicting the suffering by sort of uh, propelling the, the, the pages forward. But I think that there were so many people in the dark who disliked A Little Life that the fact that she took an ax to it was satisfying for a lot of people. So in terms of the amount of weight or the pendulum swinging towards, you know, uh, dark suffering. I, I think that we see that for sure in A Little Life. But then she goes back to a television show and almost all the television shows she feels this way about. The, the easiest one for me to discuss is Ted Lasso because I think she's the wrongest about it. But Ted Lasso, have, have you seen Ted Lasso? No. So Ted Lasso is about a optimistic American football, American football coach um, he's an American, American football coach okay. who is brought in to uh, England to coach a European football soccer team. Uh oh, misunderstanding. And, and there's, right, right, right. And there's like a clash of attitudes, which again doesn't really ring true in any real way because, like, are Americans cheerier than the Brits? It's like, maybe, but I don't <laughs> particularly think so. And like, are American coaches cheerier than British coaches? Like, possibly, but not really interesting to, to, to me. But the show is fascinating. Um, and it's fascinating to me, and forgive a little bit of a digression, because it is the least Jewish sitcom in the history of the American <laughs> television. So this is a little bugaboo that uh, that Miss Segal accidentally walked into for my discussion of it. But like, does that, does nothing... that, does that change the way you respond to it? I don't know. I think so. I, I think it does. For I mean, the, for better super... or worse. Oh, far worse. I so it, it <laughs> unlike like all the jokes that I'm accustomed to growing up with, like uh, and Seinfeld is the most obvious stand-in, but the jokes that were familiar in sitcoms, because even if the characters weren't as Jewish as they were in sitcoms, all of the writers were. So they're all like sarcastic and um and dismissive of of things mattering and like even the the like the dopey dad with the jokes, we as viewers are meant to judge all of these characters and look <laughs> down upon them. And there, there's 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 like suffering that that is that is everywhere in the typical American sitcom. But she doesn't mention that type of real suffering that defines 
so many of, of the, the, the sitcoms, I mean, we, we can we can mention, but like My Two Dads is like this okay. ridiculous sitcom where it's like these two dads who both are in love with their daughter and like they refuse to take paternity tests because like it'll make one of them suffer too much. Murphy Brown is like this like sad lady who's always firing her personal assistant. And then she gets into like trouble with uh, with various political world, you know, Boy Meets World. There, there are there are kids whose parents have left them. And like in all of these sitcoms, there are bright, cheery ways that we're looking at traumatic, horrible things. If you look at Roseanne, which are like defined the sitcoms before Seinfeld did, it's this like sad family sort of acknowledging that life sucks or we're going to make the, the most of it. Not Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is about this super cheery guy and a bunch of super cheery friends and all the, the jokes. They're not sarcasm ever they're like witty wordplay and there are literal christmas episodes even though the seasons always take place in um in the summer you know but right. like we, we need to interrupt with the christmas episode also if you google this because i was thinking about this and wanted to see if i was going crazy the far right the christian right love this show and it's like how uh, ted lasso is what we all like need to aspire to because he has a good attitude and through sheer work ethic and and his, um, you know, you can do it spirit. It takes, it shows what America can do and then the best of America. Um, so Ted Lasso to me is an easy example for Seagal because we find out, and this is a spoiler for Ted Lasso season two, let's call it two thirds into it, where the reason why Ted Lasso is earnestly cheery in the face of so many lost uh, soccer games and in the face of a split up family is because he experienced profound trauma as a kid. Okay. And she says that that cheapens the character of Ted Lasso. That would be more interesting if he is just an inexplicably cheery fellow in the in the midst of all of this and my even, response even if he had a terrible trauma like that's still inexplicable because like plenty of people respond to that trauma differently like that trauma is not the reason he's cheery i mean the trauma is exactly like the thing that happened to him exactly and my attitude is exactly that it's i don't care about the two minute scene admits that one of the reasons he's cheery all the time is because he had to be because his childhood was so hard because as Seagal points out, and you just reiterated now, a lot of people whose parents die or commit suicide or left them are really sad when they grow up. And a lot of people whose parents die or commit suicide or leave them are happy when they grow up. And one does not necessarily lead to the other. And I'm confused as to what Seagal's point is, because as you said, if it's just a matter of a swinging of the weight of a pendulum where it used to be that we would think more about action moving forward. And now we're thinking more of the psychological damaging causes of that action. That would be one thing. But in this Ted Lasso example, he just says it once. And otherwise the, the show can be watched completely as it could have been before, where he goes yeah. around, uh, around doing things, as opposed to Seinfeld, where the vision of the world is just that everything is horrible. But as a, as a whole, I don't see a a compelling argument of what she's talking about. She does say that there was a time in the not too distant past where essentially, if you wanted to say the worst thing that happened to you in a personal essay, you could get paid a hundred bucks by, you know, a, an internet periodical to, yeah. to 
to say that online. I think that is probably true, but that to me was more a product of the memoir boom of the 90s and early aughts than anything that's happened in the last decade. So I, I get a little bit confused as to what her point is, especially as she has as many counterexamples as she has examples. So I am confused as to what argument she's making other than the fact that she didn't like a little life and more people are explicitly discussing trauma now than maybe were at a previous time. So you find her to be performing a, a sort of an intellectually dishonest maneuver whereby she is really interested in displaying her uh, deep and detailed and witty knowledge of culture and she sort of p-hacks her way to a thesis but it's because because like her evidence seems sort of both cherry-picked and in, in like arbitrary and multiple dimensions the the thesis itself seems almost like a like a, 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 a both like secondary and ultimately unconvincing like epiphenomenon of this sort of which series is almost of observations. yes that's that's very well said and i do admit my biases which i find almost all trend pieces to fall into this trap where instead of just saying the experience of reading a little life was very um unpleasant to mm -hmm. me yeah and this is why and let me analyze the the uh, sort of authorial intent and then the effects of reading in uh, juxtaposition of the authorial intent. And then you can either say the uh, author did what she wanted to successfully and I just didn't like it, or the right. author didn't do what she wanted to successfully. To me, those are more valid types of criticisms. Then these trend pieces, which she um, wrote for the New York Times book review in one page snippets for a bit, and then they gave her more real estate because they liked her work. And then she graduated to this New Yorker gig as sort of a, a larger scale, you know, long form essayist. But this type of trend piece um, really frustrates me because I don't, I don't know what its point is beyond this book bothered me. Look at all these other things that I can talk about along with the fact that this book bothered me, you know, but, but she does this thing that if one of my students did, I would tell her, I would tell him or her not to. The expanded definition of trauma has allowed many more people to receive care, but has also stretched the concept so far that some 636,120 possible symptom combinations can be attributed to PTSD, meaning that 636,120 people can conceivably have a unique set of symptoms and the same diagnosis yeah. okay maybe like ptsd is really complicated and it's an umbrella term and like like why is that bad like i, I don't like if you if, if you replaced ptsd with headache or depression right. or anxiety like i don't i don't know whether the number would be 636,120 but just like repeating that twice in the same sentence that long sort of very specific number and not concluding like it means that they could all be have the unique set of symptoms and the same diagnosis like yes that's true and that's the problem with her argument that she's folding in 30 you know 636,120 various lines of thought into the fact that 
what she has been digesting in culture seems to rely on trauma more than it used to or more than she wants it to, it's um, ultimately very unsatisfying to me because she doesn't force herself to think about parallel examples that complicate her analysis. So she doesn't say, yes, that's true with PTSD and like headache or anxiety for which that also might be true, something, something, something. Or unlike Agamemnon, whose death is brought about because of these sufferings and you know traumas in his past something 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 she's just sort of one after another after another tells us all the reasons why culture is obsessed with backstory suffering yes uh briefly to uh follow a digression for my long-suffering wife's sake because she does cite the dsm the diagnostic diagnostic statistical manual uh, as a as a source of psychiatric uh, truth and in this and in this the passage you're talking about right now um, I I think the, the 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 DSM is weirdly cited by people as if it were like a definition will be taken from the DSM and attributed as like binding professional opinion to all psychiatrists in a way that actually makes no sense to any psychiatrist that I know that like, it's a little and bit even like- Even as a layman, you, you can tell that. It's like anytime anyone talks about uh, homosexuality, it's like the DSM said that if you were gay, it was, you, you know, you were a severely damaged, terrible person as recently as 1978, you know? And you're right. like, well- No, I mean, it would, that, it would be like if you quote it, if you were like, well, M.H. Abrams defined the pathetic right. fallacy as it, it like, and so all writers, you know, are, are, are professionally obliged not to use it, which is like insane. Like most psychiatrists I know, roll their eyes at the DSM because it's it's a grift. It's like it's like somebody making money the way that like the guys who make the MLA handbook make money. Uh, but so I think, I guess my, I agreed with everything you are saying about the trend pieces. And I think your account of this essay's origins may even be the more correct one. And yet I found her to be performing a different intellectually dishonest maneuver whereby she came in to this <laughs> essay. We're unbearable. Yes, we're we're horrible. We, she came into this essay with a with a, uh, a grouchy hunch, and then she looked for examples to support that claim, and then she filled it out with some counterexamples because she started to find that the more she thought about specific examples, the less she felt confident in her initial hunch. But I agree with her initial hunch and don't really care about the examples because I think generally speaking, <laughs> she's sort of right that like, hey, overall, we've like really stretched the definition of trauma and like overall, doesn't it seem like there are all these TV shows where like the main character has to go to therapy a lot and like, this just feels like a little much, guys. Let's back off of this a little bit. So like I share that old man kind of uh, curmudgeonly premise with her. And so I think like good, like it's it's sort of like the a really obnoxious James Wood article uh, that was like really cruelly, uh, attacking Zadie Smith's first novel by calling it hysterical, by like making it the poster child for hysterical realism. When really yes. what he was saying is like, hey, there's this thing a lot of novels are doing lately. Like enough already, guys. Let's ease up on that and do a different thing. Okay, great. So let's transition away from this essay, <laughs> which we both think of as intellectually dishonest and towards the conversation at the heart of this essay, which is yeah. you feel as though culturally we are putting too much emphasis on trauma. Yes. I don't have a good 
counter essay with my own examples built up, I have an impression I've, I've received. I also think like also, and I won't, I won't like too much attribute this to my wife, but I think that there is like the, the conclusion we have drawn from our positing the widespread existence of trauma is that triggers for trauma should be avoided at all costs, which like, at least if you are going to, if you are going to think in psychiatric terms is totally the wrong conclusion to, to draw. Like it's totally the opposite of the way, you know, not that I think we should all treat each other the way psychiatrists treat their patients, but if we are going to suppose that we should treat each other the way psychiatrists treat our patients, they would do the opposite of that thing. They would perform exposure. All right, but therapy. then let's have the conversation that we're having as opposed to the meta conversation here, which is, do you think there should be trigger warnings when you teach complicated works to the high school and college levels? Because that's that, that seems to be the implied backdrop to a lot of this conversation. Oh, that, trigger warnings? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think trigger warnings are dumb. I also like, to the extent to which it's possible to say like, hey, let me know if things might bother you. Let me know if they do. We can work something out. Like, I don't mind saying that a little bit. Sorry, sorry. So what's the difference between those two? Because I- Oh, oh I, no, I, I, think, I think there's no difference except that I think the, I think the phrase trigger warning is a really dumb, obnoxious phrase. And I think the practice is an unnecessary one, but I don't mind, I don't mind performing a little lip servicey version of it and like, and then moving on. Cause I don't think that's like a major hardship. What I, what I, I'm less interested in that than I am in like, so I'll say like your observation about Ted Lasso, which I have not seen, <laughs> don't have much interest in seeing, uh, makes it's perfect funny. sense you to me. see it. It's okay, fun. well, because, and as a Gentile, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll appreciate yeah, it. Oh, <laughs> as a Gentile, you're going to love it. I you, you know, what we, you, know what, oh. you know what you and I should should talk about at some point is a Danny McBride sitcom. Because I wonder if those, I've heard those are sort of like characterized as like the like the, the ultimate in Protestant sitcoms. But um, I, I can't watch them. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, it's true. I fundamentally don't get any of the jokes. So okay. I, I'm, I'm happy to have an excuse why. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so that may be, like, yeah, that may, that may those, be it. Those people seem acting in a uh, manner that doesn't fit the uh, polite society in which they find themselves. Like, I don't I don't understand any of the jokes. So I'm willing to, <laughs> to absolutely agree with, with that premise. And I'm willing to watch hours of it if it means that I can uh, be told <laughs> why I don't understand your, yeah. this joke. Uh, but you were so, about to say, as opposed to Ted Lasso, which you have no interest in. Oh, no, right. Well, to, right. I mean, I without having seen it, I saw, I didn't even read them, but like I saw, you know, at least 15 headlines that, that brought up Ted Lasso and said, why Ted Lasso is saying something so important about grief and trauma. Like, like I, you know, so I think like whether or not the show is actually concerned with that, she is at least picking up on a whiff of like people getting too excited about something or getting really into thinking about things in Eastern. And that may be really the criticism is like, it's not even necessarily so much about entertainment as it is about the way people talk about entertainment or, or like, I mean, because that was the same thing with fucking I May Destroy You, which I, you know, which I saw and like was well done, but like was really tiresome in some respects. And there, that had a lot of similar pieces about how why it was so important. And it was so important because we were dealing with grief and trauma. And uh, I, But I'm I mean, just sorry, I'm, I'm going back to Aeschylus and Homer just because oh. I feel like they're a touchstone that we can like assume a lot of our listeners have, have right. read some of. But like, yeah. wasn't the whole thing with Achilles that like his his best friend slash lover was killed and then like like dealing in that grief and trauma he lost his mind and went and like murdered everybody like i i don't oh, he didn't lose his mind he, i mean if anything he lost his mind by not murdering people that he when he when he kind of came back i mean if it were it was um ajax lost his mind and slaughtered a bunch of animals but yeah no right achilles was sulking achilles 
was sulking and that yeah. was a major plot point like i i don't if you look at the, oh yeah no you know, no no i mean i think odyssey I think it's it's uh it's you know the his his wife is is at home just like being sad having experienced the trauma of losing her husband and all of these suitors coming and right. he experienced you know is is coming back and the whole story of the odyssey is just one trauma after another and like sure. they're more exciting traumas perhaps but that's what they are i i don't i don't understand the i mean i i agree you said in a previous episode that watching people either in um, an AA meeting or in um, therapy is sort of a, a boring to, to, to a viewer. And it's a right. trope that now that I am not interested in when it, when it comes on the screen, but as, as somebody who, I don't know, lives, lives in the world, has conversations with, with friends and family, it seems like loss and sadness and pain and trauma. I mean, it, it could just be that like, my closest friend's mom died a couple months ago and I had this like few year period of my time where I was chronically ill and incapable of, of doing anything. Um, you've had your own health stuff. I see my sure. parents as they're getting older, you know, especially during COVID like questioning the, the trauma in, in their lives and, and trying to, to make sense of, of how we're living after all of that. Like I, I, I see now people who are trying to make sense of previous Russian invasions of Ukraine and now this this one. I see people trying to complain that everyone who cares so much about Ukraine, they're just racists and really they didn't give enough credibility to these other traumas. And my response to all of this seems to be not like, shut up with your traumas. It seems to be like, yeah, that's that's a bunch of terrible stuff. And like, it probably defines a lot about your vision of the world and we should chat about it. I I, sure. I I don't see what's what's wrong with trauma as a uh, 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 an artistic catalyst. Well, but I think that's that's the thing is that is that the problem is not that it's a catalyst. The problem is when it's an, uh, a an end in itself. So I think like you're right that all of those old stories involve a lot of trauma, but like the 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 version of the Agamemnon that would be made as an HBO miniseries today would be the whole thing would take place while Agamemnon was at war and Clytemnestra was like like lying at home be moping and like with what's his name it would be about her with it would like, center on right well I mean she is kind of the main character of the Agamemnon anyway but she's not the well, main that's character that's what I was gonna say well no 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 I... but hold on but hold on a minute like the, the thing that's happening in the Agamemnon is not that she's like trying to find sexual satisfaction while like reliving this tragic memory of watching her child get murdered the thing that's happening is she's taking fucking revenge on her husband and chopping him up with an axe in a bathtub. And I think like, again, it's not that all stories have to be chopping somebody up with a bathtub in a bathtub. It's not that all stories have to avoid trauma. It's just that I think it's a matter of emphasis. I mean, again, you're right. Like if, if Achilles story were written in this context today, it would the whole thing would take place in his tent, right? We would not get like, there is a trauma and, and grief and the response to trauma and the memory of trauma is part of what makes characters interesting. And I wouldn't want to get I rid of it. But I think you and she I, are being, sorry, go ahead. Well, and I think I think that what, what I read as the most valuable part of her piece was saying, let's lay off of that as the major thing. Like, hey, remember it's, it can be fun to have characters with a little less background. It can be fun to have characters who are doing a little more in the present. Even if things have happened to them in the past, maybe we just don't have to spend the whole story waiting for them to get over it or come to terms with. Like, Fine, the, but the problem the is one of is, genre. 
The problem is one of genre that you and, and Pearl Segal are saying, why can't we have these other things? But these trend pieces need to limit their, their scope to such a small degree that you have to, by definition, ignore all of the counterexamples for which there are many, many, many more than examples. Like if you're saying that there aren't mysteries anymore or thrillers, there aren't there aren't um, examples of no, but of like women okay. So for are... example, like like we watched a Poirot, the Poirot mystery thing that was an it's a fucking Agatha Christie story that uh, had uh, John Malkovich. Uh, Joanna and I watched it, and like it was fine. It was like interesting enough, but like fucking thirty five percent of it was John Malkovich being being like sorrowful and staring off and saying little funny things that gave hints. And then finally we learned that he had under, he'd like watched a bunch of his parishioners get murdered when he was a priest back in France a million years ago. And like that, which is, which is again, it's fine to have some backstory, but it feels like, it feels like an overemphasis on that at the moment, which is why well, I'm, not, about, I'm not, I'm not less interested in the trend piece than in a, like a rant piece. What, what about succession, which could have as easily been about how traumatic the childhood is. Right. And it's part of what's really fun about it is that we do like, you get a plenty, you get a very strong sense that there was a lot of trauma but you don't uh it's fun not to dwell too much in it so again this is why like i think trend pieces are less interesting than than like i think part of the thing with a trend piece is that you you feel like you have to make a rock solid case for your argument whereas i'm more interested in a in a like an indefensible crankish rant that says like, I just hey doesn't it feel like this right but but does it feel like this i mean again yeah, it does to lotus, me yeah, I feel the White Lotus like, could have been about the trauma, or the back trauma of the gay manager of the hotel, or like the dopey yeah. blonde who's who's, and it it wasn't. Right. Like I don't, I just, you know, the the even that that chess show, um, mm -hmm. it in many ways uh, there was uh, I spent some time right on, exactly, yeah. but it's way more Greek as you have defined it than American as she has defined it, where the show is about her you know, chopping up guys in the bathtub with her chess game. Yeah. It's not about her suffering uh, yeah. as, a, as a child. Yeah, and but, I, but, I, but, I, but they, I will say like there were a number of sequences where we sort of watched her spin out in her underwear and drink a lot and stare at the ceiling and remember her childhood. And and I will just say those passages in, this, in the movie I found to ring less true, to be less interesting, to move things along less. They felt in a way like they were, they were sort of required like it was almost like you had to include a little bit of this time and it just so again i'm not it's sort of like with the four humors like like if you were to like the four humors are made up medicine but if you were to believe them literally then like everybody's primary humor would be blood because we all have more blood in us than we do have like phlegm or yellow bile, bile or black right. bile but right. the question is like is the balance of the humors and so it's not necessarily that like everything is about trauma today or there's too much trauma in every piece or it, but the question is like boy whatever whatever percentage of our of our uh, 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 storytelling should be devoted to trauma, it feels like it's a little too much right now. And I do think there's an important distinction to make between trauma as she is considering it, and particularly really like we're talking about post-traumatic processing rather than trauma in the sense that like any big violent, sad or scary thing that happens is trauma. Well, like sure, but, but we're talking about the past tense, you know, like sad past tense events that you are that you are processing and dealing with and coming to terms with. It's the coming to terms withness that I find really, really tiresome. 
It's not I, like I agree, but I also think that that might be a product of television. I, I think that television is particularly good at propulsive what is going to happen next and particularly bad at backstory yeah. where where everybody has to look a little bit younger and we have to care about what happened to somebody in the past, even though yeah. what we really care about is what's going in the future. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the best TV ever made is entirely without backstory, you know, like... Mm -hmm. I'm not a big Walter White fan, but like that with the, that um, Breaking Bad show, there are moments of backstory, but those are backstory. They're very, very violent and sort of exciting backstory as opposed to trauma, sad backstory. But like The Wire, for example, has no backstory. Yeah. It's told just, you know, season for season moving forward. Similarly, you know, the, the Sopranos have a couple moments of backstory, which are boring and crappy when you're going back into his childhood, remembering what it was like growing up with a bad mom and, and dad. But other than that, it moves forward. I think TV is is bad at backstory in a way that fiction isn't. I, I think when, when fiction is, I, I agree with you, too heavily focused on backstory, the book just becomes ponderous and and unreadable, but like uh, Franzen's most recent book, which I've, which which I liked, it, there's a 150-page backstory about a character, and it really not only is satisfying in and of itself, but it makes us understand her more in the present and sure. creates the, a, a sort of continuity of character, which is deeply satisfying. So I, I wonder whether conflating TV and books and seeing this as an overall trend as opposed to just one book she didn't like and then piling on a whole bunch of additional books, some of which she did, some of which she didn't, TV shows, some of which she did, some of which she didn't, would have made for a cleaner essay. I think your, I think the, your distinction about the, the strengths and weaknesses of the different forms is really, media is really on point. And I read very little contemporary fiction. So I have very little, like, so I'm, yeah, if, if, particularly if you, in your experience with contemporary fiction, don't have the same, don't, you know, feel the same ponderousness, uh, then yeah, I think that that seems like a pretty, uh, a pretty correct uh, refutation. 